Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everyone, this is Harmon, and welcome to Comedy History 101. Year and extravaganza, where we school you in comedy of 2023. Yes, I am Harmon, and today, this very day, we are going to dive into the best of 2023. Yes, we have had comedy history episodes on Kids in the Hall, Mr. Bill, The Comedy Culture Wars, Last Comic Standing, The Dublin Comedy Scene, Michael Richards' Infamous Meltdown, Revenge of the Nerds, Found Footage Festival, The Harvard Lampoon, Celebrity Journalism of the 80s, Shemp Howard, and more. Yes, we are going to give a sampling of the best Comedy History 101 episodes of 2023. And it's been a heck of a year, and we've had some amazing guests who helped us do some deep dives into the history of comedy. Most particularly, Comedy History 101 was off for two solid years. And in 2023, we resurrected from the ashes like a mighty comedy history phoenix soaring into the we-will-school-you-in-comedy skies. And on that reason alone, please take some time to like, subscribe, and comment on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your podcasts, most particularly on ComedyHistory101.com or on the social medias, at Comedy History 101. Even give us suggestions of episodes we should dive into, and we will read your comments on the air via AI. The point being, show Comedy History 101 a little love. So on this episode, we are going to highlight some of our favorite guests of 2023. And if you like what you hear, you can always go back and dive into the entire episode. And by the way, these episodes are in no particular order because all our guests this year have been crazy interesting and have provided some great insights into the history of comedy. So without further ado... Comedy History 101. Our first Comedy History 101 deep dive is from an episode back in June where I interviewed Paul Myers, brother of Mike, who wrote the book Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. Yes, a definitive history of the comedy group Kids in the Hall. And what I loved about interviewing Paul he knew the kids in the hall right from the very start, which was like a comedy converging of the Beatles before the Beatles. 
actually it's funny the book opens up with a sort of a scene of me walking to see them at the Rivoli and a, an interesting confluence of just as they had started doing those shows in Toronto now I am from Toronto and I grew up in Toronto and um I had been going to take Second City workshops at the Second City Fire Hall, which was a building called the Old Fire Hall on the other side of town. And coming out of one of the classes was Scott Tom, no, excuse me, Kevin McDonald and Dave Foley. And Dave Foley and Kevin McDonald knew my brother, who had also been at Second City workshops and had gone on to the touring company. So they were kind of like, oh, you're Paul, you must be Mike's brother, Paul. And we started talking. I was in a band that played the Rivoli all the time, which was a kind of a multi-use club. And the comedy was just starting to become something in the clubs. It wasn't especially sketch comedy. There were stand-up comedy places like Yuck Yucks. You know, stand-up comedy was a little more established, but not down on this hip street called Queen Street West. So the fact that the kids in the hall were saying that they were about to play the Rivoli and I went, I play there. I know that place on any other given night. It's a band club, you know, and I thought I'll go see them. Now, I was also dating a woman at the time who had gone to York University with Scott Thompson. And she said, my friend Scott's comedy troupe is playing the Rivoli. And I said, wouldn't it be weird if it was the same people that I'm going to see? So we went and it was definitely Scott and Kevin and Dave and then Bruce and Mark and other people were performing still at the time too, like Luciano Casimiri and sometimes Sandra Seamus. And they they basically, uh, we watched them build a following and there were weeks when there was hardly anyone there. So it was every Tuesday or Monday, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> like Bruce and Mark came from Calgary and that's like, there were already the five of them in the group. It was at that point when you started seeing them? They had, yeah, they'd just gotten Scott. So they had finally sort of settled in. So I kind of missed the firsthand uh, sort of watching them shift their lineups. Now, what I didn't realize is that my brother had also, Mike had also been doing uh, theater uh, sports with some of them and doing scenes. So they all kind of knew each other. And you got to understand, this is like, uh, well, now it seems like the Beatles, like, and I can say that objectively, but it seems like, you know, Liverpool, but the bands were all getting together and they hadn't really formed yet. And so, but they all kind of went, oh, that guy plays bass. I know him and this guy, you know, but so these comedians were all just sort of like looking for a place to do it. And, and you know, and I, mean, I could go long on this answer, but the, the whole generation was people who had watched the first iteration of Saturday Night Live and Monty Python. And for them, sketch comedy was this thing, you know, like we don't we're not stand up comics. We're not just up there telling jokes or, you know, stories. We're trying to make scenes. So all of these people kind of knew each other the way the way golfers on the pro tour would know each other. They were like, oh, I know that guy or that woman, you know, you know, Second City workshops can't be understated because the fact that they had a workshop and if you're a Canadian boy, especially a woman, too. But I mean, for me, a Canadian boy. Um, you know, seeing that, you know, John Candy and, and Catherine O'Hara and, you know, Joe Flaherty and all these people were coming out of this building, the fire hall, they had done Dan Aykroyd and, you know, Gilda Radner had worked there. And so it was like, they're teaching you how to do that. So a lot of these people that we knew, Dave Foley, Kevin McDonald, my brother, uh, they all went down to Second City because they wanted to see where the magic was. And then the theater sports started, which was more of a you know, Western import. And that's where Mark and Bruce sort of got their start. You know, they were in, they were in the Loose Moose Theater in Calgary, which was teaching theater sports.
And what what were those early days like? Did, was it right out of the gates? Was it like, okay, here's something? Or did it take them a while to get their voice? Or how long did it take to get their voice if that was the case? You know, that's, a, that's you know, that each guy in the troop would tell you a different story, probably. I would say that from where I was sitting, this thing of having it be different voices in different scenes kind of helped seem like there was a general theme of uh, mayhem, uh, kind of anti-establishment, anti kind of suburban reactionaries. Like they were, they were definitely, they weren't city kids and they were in the city and they were reacting to culture without being deliberately political. They didn't do sketches about the prime minister. They did sketches about people having homophobic reactions to things and and they did sketches about rejecting the sort of cold isolation of the family life in the suburbs that they had experienced and and so there was a there were themes that ran through and i guess the idea too that they would also dress up as women in a way that wasn't just for you know boob jokes like they weren't just putting on massive breasts and saying look at me i'm a chick which uh, i i swear other people were doing We all know Saturday Night Live, right? You know, SNL, as the cool kids call it. Well, in the very first seasons, one of the biggest breakout stars was not John Belushi. Well, it was John Belushi, not Gilda Radner. Oh yeah, it was Gilda Radner. But the third most popular character on the early seasons of Saturday Night Live was Mr. Bill. And I got a chance to talk to Walter Williams, who created Mr. Bill and also later became a staff writer on Saturday Night Live. And I loved hearing the origin stories of, well, Mr. Bill. Hey kids, it's me, Mr. Bill. And I hope you're ready to have fun today because we're all going camping. Yay! Ready to set up the camp, Mr. Bill? Oh no! Help me put up the tent, Mr. Bill. Here, you hold the tent stake while I hammer it into the ground. When Mr. Bill first got submitted to SNL, it was just sort of an open call. Yeah, we'll play no pay. I did that for a few years, too. In fact, I never really got paid until I got on staff on the fourth season. But the first three seasons, actually, the first Mr. Bill was on the very first season. I was, I was in New Orleans. I had a comedy show, like a little live presentation of films and skits and all this stuff. Saturday Night Live came on and someone said, hey, they have this home movie contest. So I sent a reel of my films and my super eights and they picked mr bill out the reel and uh i called them hey did you get my reel of films yeah we're gonna put we're gonna put it on this week i said wow and uh of course it was a it was a mardi gras weekend in new orleans and they actually preempted saturday night live for the mardi gras parade but i i knew that in advance so but i was able to go to the studio and i saw the feed and it was on uh, no one believed me the next week. Yeah, you're just saying that because it, was, it wasn't on. So they finally reran the show and then they believed me. Fortunately, I didn't have an aptitude for anything back then. So I, I went into comedy. My sister was dating this guy who was doing his own feature film in, in New Orleans. And so I got to work on it. And that kind of showed me the whole how films are shot out of sequence. And some days, you know, you, you shoot something and then edit to something you shot a year later. And then I, I kind of that was my training in film. And then he actually loaned me the Super 8 film that I filmed the Mr. Bill and the others on. So I was a teenager. Nothing better to do. I had no real backup plan. So off to New York eventually. 
you were a teenager at the time you submitted the film? That's right. Uh -huh. I was a night watchman at the time, actually. I'd write and edit my films at night and then shoot in the day. And I kind of really got on a, a whirlwind. Like, hypothetically, if I were a space alien, and this is hypothetical. Mm, you sure? It's hypothetical, in air quotes. Okay. How how would you describe a typical Mr. Bill episode? Well, I started the first one. It was going to be a surprise. So I kind of based it off a, like a parody of a kid's show with a host and welcome to the show. And then everything terrible starts happening. But I wanted to prolong the uh, before I started torturing him. So that's why I invented Spot, his dogs. So I figured I'd do something to the dog first, you know, just delay it a little bit. Because once you start dismantling Mr. Bill, you got to kind of go the whole distance. So basically, as a theme, we're going to do something today. We're going to go to the circus. We're going to, you know, build a house. And it became a formula. I didn't really intend to do more than the first one. They said, you have any more of these? I'm sure. And then I made another one. And, and then before you know it, I got on staff eventually. What was like the reaction? Was it like a media reaction after that first time it got shown? Oh yeah. Well, it started off. I could. I, I did. I did see the uh, the feed at the studio, and, and it started off as like this kind of corny, badly made film. You could hear the groans in the audience, like, "Oh, this is really." But as soon as uh, Spot got squished, big laugh, and then from the, then on to the end of the film, it was like sounded like a kind of a laugh riot. It still took a couple of years to get on staff. I kept making them and submitting them in that little disclaimer at least because of no pay we'll play no pay i was able to hold on to the ownership so when i got on staff i was able to keep control of the films and the characters all that kind of stuff and then so the second one came out at the end of the first season kind of bookending the first season it may have been the second season i, I gotta i'd have to check my notes a second season <laughs> yeah and then they had a couple on the third season mr bill goes to the circus and mr bill pays his taxes and that's when um, I finally got a meeting with Lauren, Lauren Michaels, and he says, I want you to, next year, I, I want you to make 10 of these. I said, can you trust me to do that? And he said, no, but if, if it works, you'll be a hero and I'll be a hero. So we shook hands. He kind of just let me go with it. You know, he really, he said, I want to read the scripts first and after a while, I said, just do it. I don't know. I don't know how you do it. Just do it. And if it doesn't work out, I'll cut it yeah, after dress rehearsal. But they all got on. And was that the typical writing process in the early days or was it kind of really, you know, you had to go through the hoops that you have to go through today to get it like a sketch on? Well, I actually got a staff writing job that fourth season, too. When I, I finally got an official contract to do the Mr. Bills, I said, you know, Lauren, I, I write all this other stuff, too. So he invited me to participate writing the commercial parodies that they're done before the season starts to kind of since they're filmed, they're kind of the first things that get done. And so he gave me the writing position, too. So I had like suddenly two jobs. Yeah, I've never been paid before to, to do it. And then also I got two different jobs. So the staff writing job whole different deal you go there on monday night and the writers uh, are in lauren's office and he goes around one by one in order and what are you working on and then you tell him some ideas and then he'll say yeah I this and that i like that and then you go the ones he liked that you'd start working on it and then turn into all-nighters on tuesday nights wednesday read through your script and that part was long whereas the mr bill i'd go back to my place and just do it and he'd see it in the dress rehearsal and he'd have the choice then but uh as i say they all wound up getting on Back in July, I had the pleasure of performing with comedian Freddie Lockhart at our AI versus human roast battle show 
at the Ice House in Los Angeles. Quick little plug. And what I learned was Freddy has the notoriety of being the last comic to introduce Michael Richards of Seinfeld on stage as a comedian the night, the very night of his infamous meltdown. I was going on in the main room at the comedy store one night and Michael Richards, Kramer from Seinfeld, was set to go on after me. And he was running a little late, but he finally gets in and he's like, oh, you're never going to believe it. I had some trouble. It's like, what kind of trouble? He's like, trouble at the Laugh Factory. And I was like, ah, oh, the Laugh Factory. Okay, whatever. What happened? Did you get heckled? And he's like, ah, oh, yeah, it was real bad, real bad. I was like, hey, we all, we all, it's baseball. I give him the old speech. It's baseball. You know, if we're hitting 30%, we're going to the Hall of Fame. You don't got to worry about it. He's like, no, 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 it's real bad, real bad, real bad. I'm like, how bad can it be? You know? And then he's just not telling me. And then they start calling my name. I was like, dude. And the last thing I said to him is, I go, if nobody got it on video, there's nothing to worry about. And I go get on stage and I do my set. And then I bring him on. After I'm done, he bombs because he was a terrible comedian. But that was the last time he would ever do stand-up comedy again because it hit the press. Somebody did record it. And it was him dropping the in-bomb like a space bar. And he spared telling me because I'm half black. So... You know, it all made sense in the morning. I went, oh, that's why he didn't tell me. Yeah. And thank God somebody got that on video. Yeah. And before then, what was your opinion of Michael Richards? I mean, again, there's a specific thing in mostly like in L.A. where someone's famous and they want to parlay that fame and they think it's sort of an easy pivot to, well, I'll just do a stand-up comedy act like Stormy Daniels. With that directions. Right. It, you know, the great thing about comedy, it's a very humbling thing. And if you don't got it, you don't got it. And and, and he is a great comedic timing pratfall artist. He has his place in history, for sure. And when he would come around doing stand-up, guys like him and Judd Apatow, they're actually very nice. And Judd Apatow was a comedian before. And, and Michael Richards was back in the day. But they're not like us in the gym every single day. And and he was he was bad. And, and, and the thing is, he was fairly nice every time I spoke with him. But he was, no, he wasn't good at it because... You just can't fake comedy. You just can't fake it. And even if you're a star, that might even put you in arrears with the audience because they expect you to be great. But how many doors can you burst through on stage, you know? So what what kind of stuff material was Michael Richards doing at that time? Trying some weird kind of like alt comedy. Like alt comedy was real big in the early 2000s. And some people were great at it. Galifianakis was an alt comic. There was brilliant ones. And that's what it is. He was just like acting out monologues and just being strange. And, and, and things where I'm like, dude, this is hard enough when you're good, man. Why are you doing this? Why are you going up there? Like they weren't, he wouldn't talk about Seinfeld. You know, people wanted to hear the Kramer thing. You're the most famous next door neighbor in television history. You're, you're not going to shake that. You either embrace it, you know, find a way to do stand-up, I don't think he can just because he didn't start. He's not a real one like Jerry was, like Seinfeld. By real one, I mean practice and seasoned. And before you got famous, you were already an accomplished comedian. Whereas he was on a show called Fridays. He, you know, he had, he'd worked a lot uh, even in his twenties. Just what d- didn't have it. Did he have like that attitude of I'm a star, therefore you should enjoy what I'm doing, or not wanting to put in the homework? when he would come on stage. And secondly, were people generally excited when they saw him, like come up on stage? Yes. Yeah. So 
absolutely. So to see him, it was still, you know, he started coming around. I, I don't know. I guess like for a couple of years and yeah, absolutely. That's a huge TV star. People would, would freak out. And he was always nice. You could tell he was strange, but he was always nice. I, I think the thing is he's, he is one of these kind of performance arts guys who happen to be a silly guy in a sitcom, but now he's like, you know, take me seriously. Now I'm doing this, you know, when in fact that's not what they want. And so it was kind of almost, like East Village in the late '60s kind of thing. Like they're not going for this dude. They they want Kramer, you know. They 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 they, they want the falls and you know that kind of stuff. And, and and again, it just doesn't translate on stage very much if you're just falling down all the time. And and I think, <laughs> I think, and he he also had a sitcom that they tried to parlay off of Seinfeld that just didn't work out. And he's he 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 like I was saying, he's the most famous next door neighbor in TV history. Rest on that, you know don't don't to me why sully that why go out there and look bad at something when you were great at something did he have that reputation like in around the stand-up scene in la of just losing his cool on stage was that like the first time that he snapped and he obviously lives in infamy yeah i did i don't know anybody to know that he was any sort of hothead ever i had never heard that. If, if anything he was so shockingly meek and, and reserved compared to the kramer thing you know he's not doing that spinning around he's usually very enters a room very gently like hello hi hello you know he's very i i, I th i'm not going to defend him but that night was to me it was just he's the thing is he was so bad at comedy that he hadn't taken those licks of a heckler before so he tried to answer back with the worst most disgusting vile thing he could think of or say and he did and 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 that's amateur comedy 101 you fold it you, you you couldn't be funny in the moment so you went for hateful and whether you mean those things or not the fact that you said them and they said them on tape you know i don't feel sorry for you that was but if anything i just saw a really bad comic go to a really bad place because he just didn't have the skills to deal with people shitting on him A good companion episode to the story of Michael Richards' debacle meltdown would be my interview with Cliff Nesteroff on his book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. And one of the things I found interesting about my interview with Cliff is diving into comedy at one time that was deemed appropriate and then the culture shift and, well, became no longer appropriate. It seems like that's a common refrain that people are always sounding the alarm that you can't joke about anything anymore, that people are too sensitive these days, that it's not like the old days, that young people don't know what's going on and young people accusing old people of being out of touch. It is a very, very common concept, but people don't seem to realize that. So that is one of the reasons I wrote the book was to add some context and demonstrate that what's happening now has happened before. And, and one of the old guard arguments was, you know, you're making African-Americans look silly, but, you know, what about Laurel and Hardy? They make, you know, white people look silly or Red Skelton. <laughs> but, you know, it's just the obvious is, you know, those are white characters with white writers writing that yeah yeah and then also like i said earlier about the stereotypes it was there's there might be two dumb white guys but all the other characterizations throughout the culture you also have smart white guys you have professional white guys like they're not all 
demeaning stereotypes, where when it came to ethnic minorities, more often than not, it was a demeaning stereotype. You know, you look at Asian characters in movies in 30s, 40s, and 50s with pidgin English or white people in yellow face. You know, there were no realistic portrayals of Asian people. So it, it, it's not a matter of like, well, how, how come white people don't complain about Laurel and Hardy? It's because there's hundreds of others ex- of examples of white characters that are not a couple of dummies, you know? So it's when you balance it, when you balance realistic portrayals in, in a proportional number, then the stereotype is not as likely to cause hysteria. But when you only have slander, then of course people are going to object. And then also interesting was sort of LGBTQ portrayals on TV were offensive, but for different reasons, because the right wing thought of it as promoting sexual promiscuity. Well, yeah, the the religious influences didn't like to see any inference or depiction of homosexuals at all. And then gay activists did not like to see homosexual stereotypes depicted. So it was sort of a weird thing in the late 60s and throughout the 1970s. It seemed like progress. Oh, there's gay characters in a TV show, but at the same time, they're stereotypes. So it had been taboo to mention it at all for much of the 20th century in TV and movies. There were coded inferences here and there, but to explicitly confess that somebody was a gay character was very taboo. But yeah, it was it was strange that that was the case. So. And that that happened with the Amos and Andy show as well, because bigots in the South objected to black actors on the screen, and then black activists objected to the fact that stereotypes were on the screen. So you had these two opposing viewpoints, and then the creators or the sponsors stuck in the middle, and they were exasperated. They were like, well, we can't win. No matter what we do, we're getting it from both angles, which ultimately had a unfortunate effect they just kind of purged all of it from the screen not necessarily gay characters but in the 50s certainly they just purged black actors from television because they didn't want to get accused of furthering racist stereotypes and they didn't want to get accused of of whatever a bigot would accuse them of so yeah that that is one of the more interesting things when you get protests from both sides even even in the 1990s a movie like basic instinct it was protested by evangelicals for its uh, sexuality and it was also protested by liberal groups for furthering gay stereotypes and talk about you know we know how it feels to get angry tweets but to actually get physically written letters just seems so much more creepier like angry letters saying i know where you live (laughs) yeah steve allen the first host of the tonight show in the late 50s he became a member of sane which was an organization sane for a sane nuclear policy it was a nuclear disarmament group many people in show business were part of it marlon brando marilyn monroe arthur miller ozzie davis harry belafonte anyways Steve Allen mentioned it on one of his Sunday night programs, the Steve Allen show. And as a result, he started to receive all these death threats in the mail. Sane had been condemned by the John Birch Society in their newsletter. And so I guess this inspired people to target Steve Allen. They accused him of being a communist. They accused him of being un-American. 
And there was a guy who sent a series of death threats to Steve Allen pretty much every week over the course of a year saying, it would give me no greater pleasure than to come down to your office in Sherman Oaks and put a bullet between your head, your, 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 between your eyes. You're nothing but a, but a communist piece of shit, you know, like literally with those types of words, full on profanity, which we don't usually associate with the late 1950s. We more associate that with today and the type of comments you might get on the internet. But yeah, it was like very serious uh, vitriol. And it was sort of intimidating in that era because in order to write a letter to somebody, it took a lot more effort than to just tweet at them. You know, if somebody's going to go through the effort of composing a long letter, knowing the person's address, paying for postage and doing it on a regular basis, there's a, there's a worry there that they might mean business. Whereas when something like that happens to you in the comments section on the internet, it's a lot easier to ignore it. Communism, that was like one of the the go-to arguments from the right. You know, this is going to promote communism. What is like some of your favorite ridiculous censorship campaigns brought on by the right? You mentioned, you know, the Beatles and the John Birch Society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good one. They, I mean, there's so much hatred towards the Beatles. If you go through the archives and the letters to the editor, you know, older people just didn't think it was music. They just thought it was noise. But yeah, there was a great book that the John Birch Society distributed. It was published by an imprint run by a guy named Billy James Hargis, who was a famous Baptist preacher in the 60s. He was sort of like Jerry Falwell before Jerry Falwell. And this book was called Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles. And it was written by this guy, David A. Nobel, who's still alive. He's part of the Council for National Policy. They advised Donald Trump's transition team in 2016. And there was David A. Nobel's name on the list of advisors. He wrote this book, Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles, in which he seriously argued that the Beatles were a communist conspiracy, that the Soviets had put some sort of subliminal thing in their music, what they called a broken treble cleft that would <laughs> break down the defenses of American youth so that they were so weak-kneed, they would be more easily overridden and primed for a communist takeover. This book actually argued that, and they sold it in John Birch Society bookstores all around the country. You can find it online. It's something of a camp classic. But, you know, it never really gained traction. But there were some people in America who truly believed this stuff. Yeah, and just other kind of jokes that were considered offensive, you know, such as, you know, you mentioned Bob Newhart making fun of American history. <laughs> like outrage if he did like a, a George Washington joke. Yes, the John Birch <laughs> Society wanted to ban Bob Newhart records because he referenced Abraham Lincoln. They wanted to ban a guy named Stan Freeberg, who did a comedy record called uh, Stan Freeberg's History of the United States of America, Volume 1. And it did get pulled from several stores. Wherever the John Birch Society had the most influence, places like Arizona, Orange County, California, they would get these records pulled, pulled from the airwaves. They would have concerted boycott campaigns of sponsors, and they would target the radio stations. They would write letters the Daughters of the American Revolution, that organization, they also targeted Stan Freeberg for his comedy records. And one of them said that she would fight Stan Freeberg's comedy record to the death simply <laughs> because it was a, a parody of American history. They made 
they had sketches on there about Christopher Columbus and about you know Washington crossing the Delaware or whatever. It just it's all so innocuous by today's standards. The fact that anybody would be really seriously upset about Bob Newhart or Stan Freeberg or the Beatles, it all looks ridiculous in retrospect. But people took it so seriously at the time and took themselves so seriously at the time. And that's sort of what I see today, you know, when somebody gets really upset about the Barbie movie. I mean, how can you take them seriously? But people do. And I think that all the things that we see today on social media, people getting upset about this or that, so much of it, just like that stuff from the 60s with the Beatles, decades from now, when you look back at it, it'll just seem absolutely absurd. Another pure treat was talking to Joe Pickett and Nick Poocher, curators of the Found Footage Festival, on their love of found videos, but most particularly on their love, much like my love, of infiltrating TV shows, which was chronicled in their recent documentary, Chop and Steal, where they posed as a fake strongman team, Chop and Steal, and infiltrated a series of morning news programs, which had the results of being sued. And because of the lawsuit that followed and the notoriety they received, they were asked to be on America's Got Talent, where, unbeknownst to the producers, they ended up they ended up peeing in their pants in front of Howie Mandel, Simon Cowell, and Scary Spice on NBC TV. And we had a great conversation about the pure joys of TV infiltration. The morning news shows is what really set that all in motion. Yeah. And so uh, I, I was like, oh, this is a pretty good story right here. And uh, so I called up Ben Steinbauer and I was like, hey, we're getting sued right now in federal court. Do you want to do you want to uh, follow us? And he's like, yes, I'll be right there. So he grabbed the camera. You said there was like one news station when you turned up to uh, infiltrate where they just went, nah. Yeah, there was one <laughs> in, in uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. We had two that morning. We had one at like yeah. 5.30 in the morning and one at 6.30 in the morning. And the one at 5.30 a.m., we went in there and the producer looked at us and he's like, ah, you guys don't really look like strongmen. He just said that to our face. And we dressed in layers so that we looked a little bit bigger <laughs> than we were. And we walked in with a cinder block and a sledgehammer and stuff like that. So we had the props and we, you know, made ourselves look bigger than we were. But he's like, you guys don't really look like strongmen. And we're like, well, we are. So uh, he's like, I'm going to go talk to my producer. And he went back in the back room and then came back. He's like, we're not going to have you guys on. So he he did his homework. I mean, he didn't do his homework, but like. He looked at us and, and said no. So good on him. But then we just went across the street to the other station and <laughs> that one that, that one went just as well. So yeah. 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 But I think it's again, it's like from infiltrating these places, it's like you're creating entertainment for people. You know, when they turn it on in the morning and they go, Do you know what I saw this morning? You know, you're you're that. Yes. So you're doing the job of what they want. Is it yes. create something that people will talk about? And even well, if it's yeah, something yeah. false, yeah. they'll still talk about it. <laughs> I, after we did one of them in uh, Allentown, we did one. We went to a Panera afterwards to get breakfast. And somebody was in Panera and was just like, hey, I loved your uh, appearance this morning. Like somebody had actually watched it. They're like, it was really it was really funny. So like, I don't know. People are laughing while they're watching their channel. How bad can it be? Like, you know, we're, we're doing them a favor. Uh, well, to our, show, our understanding, it's it was the, the line is that you can't um, – 
you have to put in enough clues or it has to be some sort of social experiment and have that value to it where you're trying to expose these companies for not doing their homework basically so that's sort of the litmus test i think for some legality purposes so but but for what you're doing like you were saying like even like jerry springer and that kind of stuff they make up the lies for you you exactly yeah yeah so i mean who gives a shit at the end of the day for like the fake chef we did create a like a fake good housekeeping article that the chef did chef keith it was like how to spruce up your leftovers and it was like uh, you know, some some dumb uh, recipes in there, like uh, I think it was like sweet potato mushroom, or it's sweet, sweet potato bars with marshmallow <laughs> topping, or you know things like that. And I it had a picture of me in there as a chef and a fake recipe, and like we but we wrote the whole article and just kind of photoshopped it. And then we just realized we don't need to go that far. Like we don't need to do fake websites. We don't need to do fake good housekeeping articles. Like. With Chop and Steel, there was nothing. There was just like a press release with verifiable lies in it if anybody did their homework. And Well, I, I remember too, we uh, in college, Nick and I roomed together in college and we would watch Jenny Jones every single night at like two in the morning. And uh, they would be like, have, have you and your roommate got into a fight yeah. over a girl or something like that? So we would always call it up and be like, yeah, we have. And then they would continue to call us. I mean, we were just like, we would make up a story and it looks like, I mean, we that was down in Chicago. We were up in northern Wisconsin, so we never actually made the trip down. But we could have, and you actually followed through on it. So I tip my hat to you on mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And did you do you experience like when I was like doing that a lot? Like the adrenaline rush would be uncanny, yeah. and I sort of like for me, I sort of just got addicted to it. Yes. <laughs> like it's just like I just want to get on every show and just a hundred percent that the, the thing like that i, I turned was... down shows uh, you were sought after yeah yeah <laughs> yeah once you're on the list you know like yeah they would just they wouldn't leave you alone they'd be like okay so you're for sure coming you know and we have you for this other show that might be good as well a lot of these producers especially with the morning news shows they're right out of college you know like because they don't get paid squat so uh you know they have a lot of inexperienced people so like when you know, chop and steal a press release shows up in their inbox. They're like, Oh yeah, this will eat up 10 minutes. Like this is uh yeah, you know, we can sit back and relax while they <laughs> do all the heavy lifting here. So uh, yeah, no, they, they, yeah, they salivate over that. But ultimately it's a pretty victimless crime. Like that's the other yeah. thing is like, what's, what was the crime happening here? We made it, like you said, it's an entertaining segment. I don't think anybody cares whether we were real strong men or not who was watching. It was just, like a funny segment on their show and got more attention to their news station than if we would had been real strong men. So you know what was funny is when we were doing uh Kenny Strasser, the yo-yo expert, yes. me and Mark went on on one in uh Wausau, Wisconsin, and um he, he did this I, I think his yo-yo no 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 he, he he hit himself in the face with like a yo-yo or something like that. And then he got really quiet and then the, it was awkward and then they threw to a commercial and then um they were like, they found out that it wasn't a real yo-yo expert. So then they wanted to make amends to their audience. And they're like, we're sorry, we got duped by this guy. We're going to bring on a real yo-yo expert this time. So they brought on this guy. I saw this. Somebody sent me the link. It was like two weeks later, they had on Zami, the yo-yo expert. So they had a real yo-yo expert on. Yeah. And I feel like people who are watching this channel are just like, what the fuck are these people talking? Like, why are we seeing so many yo-yo experts on this channel now? 
I feel like, I mean, people just like barely even watch these shows, but like this morning news show is like, we have to make amends. We have to give them a real no, yo-yo. We have, <laughs> we have to fill their yo-yo yearning. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then Zami, their actual yo-yo expert was arguably more awkward than, than K-Stress was. 100%. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Then, then Mark from there, he they, from the yo-yo. Actually, he he got um the office saw him and cast because of the yo-yo. Yeah, yeah. And then so, again, he's gone on to you know what we do in the shadows and yes, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Wow. No, it was it was like I think we had done seven morning news shows with Kenny Strasser, and then uh, I worked with somebody at the Onion, uh, who was not who was at the office, and they did an investigative report that they included me in. And so she saw me in it. She's like, oh, do, what do you know about this Kenny Strasser yo-yo? And I was like, oh, yeah, that was us. We did that. And so she's like, the office, we've been watching it in the office this whole time. And we want to fly you guys. So they flew us out. And we got to meet all the writers and everything. And, and then Mark got on the show. So, yeah. And then from there, yeah, he was on Portlandia. And then he was on, uh, yeah, what we he's on What We Do in the Shadows now. And he's super funny. I think a lot of folks don't know that we did the news things. I mean, it is kind of separate. But I do think, like, it makes sense when you know that we know what makes awkward television <laughs> having watched so many videos and training videos and, and yeah, where we kind of have mined and studied uncomfortable moments captured on video. So it was just a different leap to just do make our own <laughs> awkward moments on video. So I love performing comedy, but most particularly I love performing comedy in different countries and back in June, I talked to my friend Johnny Candon, who is an Irish comedian, about the history of Irish stand-up comedy, which, by the way, has brought the world some of the best stand-up comics on the planet. So basically, here, the Comedy Cellar, I know this because of just history, the Comedy Cellar started in about 1987, I think, and that was Ardlo Hanlon, Barry Murphy, and Kevin Gildee. I'd be watching it on TV and I was in England thinking, oh, this is amazing. There's nothing like this back home. But there was, there was that place. And there was a bunch of, there's a thing about it being, people get confused as to whether it's the first comedy club in Ireland or the longest running. I think it's the longest running. There's definitely little nights that had appeared here and there in and around town. And when I was looking at the venues, I was going, ah, oh, I went to that venue. I've been there. You know what I mean? Like some of them have turned into nightclubs and things like that. But you can see how they would have worked as a place to do comedy. And Michael Redmond, who he's a big, tall, weird looking, if he's hearing this, he's a lovely guy, but he's a very tall, big mustache, kind of droopy eyes. He looks like Droopy, the cartoon character, the, the dog. Was he on Father Ted? He was on Father Ted. And he, he moved, there's a whole Michael Redmond thing in the sense that he moved over to, to London, I guess, like a lot of the uh, Irish acts did. And Ardell O'Hanlon, who was also in Father Ted. And they all kind of come over to seek their fortune. But Michael Redmond, like he's in one episode of Father Ted as, as a kind of a really boring priest. He just doesn't really want to do anything or say anything. He just sits around. And Michael had this joke. He used to come on stage in like a long coat and just with a shopping bag. And he'd just stand there and stare at the audience for ages. And then he'd go, people often say to me, what are you doing in my garden? It's like, it's this sort of, it works because he's weird looking and he's sort of a bit off kilter. But this really famous British comedian called Joe Pasquale, who's kind of a Mr. Saturday Night, kind of stole it. <laughs> yeah, Stuart Lee has a bit like that about it. Stuart Lee, uh, but, yeah. Stuart Lee does an entire show about it. It's yeah. like it's 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 really funny. It's how how does that bit go again? It was like uh, because the 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 Pasquale guy got like the whole gist of the joke wrong. Well, kind of because it, the joke works because 
Michael's weird looking and not famous, uh, you know, and he wasn't at the time. Um, people recognize him now from Father's Dead, but it's like, um, but Stuart Lee's thing is, Stuart Lee goes, you know what he's like, he kind of extrapolates and extrapolates and extrapolates, takes the joke apart and then takes those parts apart. And he's gone, you know, people would look out the window and they'd go, oh, come here, come here. <laughs> they'd call someone over and go, Joe Pasquale's in the garden. Because <laughs> <laughs> Joe Pasquale, and I, not now again, this was a long time ago, but when he did it, like he was hugely famous. I think he had his own TV show on a Saturday night. So it, it doesn't work. Well, it's like Seinfeld stealing that joke. And then people wouldn't be going, what's that guy doing? They're going to be like, oh, Jesus, Jerry Seinfeld out there. So Michael was doing stuff in Ireland and things like that. And it seemed to be a kind of a, quite an arty little kind of like it, like mixes of um, poetry, like music. But I think as far as stand up as we would recognize it, I think that came with Mr. Trellis, which was Ardle, Kevin and Barry and their comedy club. And then just a bunch of people who I guess it was, a, it, it's kind of like if you, if you build it, they will come. You know, there was probably a ton of people. There was probably a bunch of people who had seen comedy in the same way that I had and then realized there was this one place that you could go in town and do that. I'd say by their own admission, probably appalling. <laughs> we probably just went along with just doing stuff. But if you keep going, keep trying stuff and getting better and everything, and that's why you've got people like Ardlo Hannon and these Dylan Moran went there and stuff. A lot of people arrived in London ready to go, you know what I mean? Because they'd been doing it for five or six years. Another joy of producing Comedy History 101 is when I get a chance to talk to comedy historians. And thus the case when I talk to Jeff Dale, the only man in history to have written a biography of Shemp Howard of the Three Stooges about his appreciation of the original member of the world-famous Three Stooges. So where are you at then? I'm in Brooklyn, New York, which oh. ironically... Is yes, the birthplace of the Three Stooges. Yes, that's that's true. That's the real Three Stooges, or like, as we like to call them now in the business, the original Four Stooges. So just yeah. to make that absolutely plain, I guess my question is, what attracted you to write about Shemp out of all the other Stooges? Oh well, really, really simple. This is a great question. I love it. I, I, I love it because it's pivotal. The Stooges essentially not as the name, the Three Stooges. But the beginnings of the Stooges started in 1923. That's 100 years ago. In that time, there's been anywhere between 40 and 50 books written about the Stooges. And that would be like books on Curly, books on Larry, the group as the group, things like film locations, some great books out there. And you know something? Not one single shampoo. So it, it left me wondering, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, he's the, he's the original Stooge. You know, basically, here's his wife saying he's the first professional stooge that Ted Healy ever had. And nothing has been written. So I thought, well, here I am up in the, up in the cold. Well, up, actually, it was the heat when I started <laughs> writing it. And uh, I thought, I'm going to write it. Let's see what, what goes. And, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. No one's ever written. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, bingo, I got a publisher. I got an American publisher, you know, where the dollar's worth a dollar. So I was quite happy. And I was thinking... Good Lord, I'm going to be writing the very first book ever written on Chem. In 100 years, no one has come forth and wanted. There's people who've wanted to do it, and because I don't know what it was. Were they afraid to do it? Were they afraid to uh, sort of be disruptive? 
if we remember this particular podcast for anything, this is what I would like to remember by, is the day that you and I, maybe you particularly, put an end to the, 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 the curly camp and the shemp camp. And let's just say they're two really great performers, absolutely different performers, but let's all get together and like all of them. You know, because especially the, the four originals and the two that came after, because they're all part of a hundred years of comedy. And how many can say that? And read my book and you'll find out academics teaching courses on entertainment history do the same thing. Put your hands up. Those who recognize uh, Lauren Hardy, nobody. Most brothers, maybe one or two. The Stooges, everyone in the class, including women. There you go. Yeah, and how would you describe Shemp's style? You know, like Mo, the boss, you know, yeah. really was kind of like the child. How would you describe like Shemp's dynamic in, in the whole Stooge mechanism? Well, he's he's a little different in a sense because you got the Larry, who's sort of the reactionary, the middle Stooge, kind of quiet, incredibly funny faces. Oh, he had the most magnificent face. But but Shemp is, is strange because he's known in his own as a solo act and part of the Stooges. He's a very physical comedian, just like the others. And by the way, he would actually not get to the point where he'd, you know, take a, a slug at all, but he'd get close. He looked almost as someone said he looked at, like kind of a mean Mo. That you know, he's a little <laughs> taller and he maybe you know smack Mo around. So he's physical. He's also what a lot of directors like Jules White didn't particularly like, unless you were curly, didn't like ad libbers. But and Champ was known as being a real ad libber. So while we think we're we're born into the the generation of ad libbers like uh, Robin Williams and George Carlin and uh, you know and Richard Pryor and people like that, way 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 back there was a lot of ad libbing. Champ was known for being a really good ad libber, and he would do it while he could. It's not every day you get to talk to a cast member of Revenge of the Nerds, one of the most iconic, raunchy comedies of the 1980s. And I got a chance to do a deep dive with Andrew Cassese, who played child genius Werbzer in the movie Revenge of the Nerds. And Andrew told me some behind-the-scene antics of what it was like to be an on-screen member of the Lambda 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 fraternity i didn't know james cromwell wasn't it until i watched yeah, it yeah yeah succession yeah. and also favored from la confidential dudley <laughs> la I'm confidential very got an oscar for babe you know he's a he's an amazing actor he actually um is originated the nerd laugh from that movie he came up with that in his audition and i remember watching his audition they had the tape of it in the van, sometimes on the way to set early on, they were watching, oh, look at Jamie's, Jamie's audition. And he was, they would, they were commenting because he was so nervous in the audition. He was just sweating bullets and, you know, almost trembling, you know, in his speech. He was so nervous about it, but he was amazing. You know, he had this amazing pathos and, and he came up with the nerd laugh that then Bobby Carradine sort of tried to mimic and made it his own kind of thing. But that's that's where that came with. Jamie Cromwell came up with that. And what, what what's like your favorite moment, both uh, in front of the camera and when the cameras weren't running? You know, I love having the scene with the girls with the boobs. That was a, a fun time. 
I really got a chance to sort of be on, you know, be at the center of the whole thing. And, and, and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, this is a lot of fun. And, and I knew that model a lot cold. So I just read it a few times and, and everybody loved it. There's a scene, there's, a, there's some odd bits that I see when I, when I see it. I get kicked in the face one time when we're doing the, the, the panty raid. Uh, Larry's going up the rope or coming down the rope, or whatever, and sort of swings it to my face. I actually take one in the face. Can't tell really in the final cut. But, uh, but I, every time I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that one, uh, that, that smarted a little bit. That was a fun night. There was a whole thing of like, oh, we're running around on the roof. I really liked doing that. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, just things like that. It was also a scene where, where, where we get confronted by the moose, not by the moose, by the, by the pies or whatever, the alpha betas, they come and the way they send pigs into the, into the, 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 the dorm house, they ruin our party. And then we're all standing on the porch, which was a set. The director was just berating us the whole time. And it got so, it got ridiculous. I'm started to like feel uncomfortable about it. I started laughing and I'm actually, I've actually laugh a little bit in the scene that in the take that they took, but it looks like I'm crying. So you can't tell really, you know, so it, it works both ways, but I know I'm like, I'm just like trying to hold it in. Cause this is, it just got hilarious. We're just, like, I don't know why I, why I was struck by it, but I guess you get you, you, your funny bone gets tickled once in a while. There was a GQ article about the oral history of uh, Revenge of the Nerds. And I think you said it that you saw like a crew member be taken away in handcuffs. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, there was a bust one night. A lot of like drugs and cocaine and partying going on. There was there was a cop, I guess, who got assigned to us, which I didn't know a lot about. But some some cop was like, I'm busting this fucking I'm busting this scene, you know. So he cased us and tried to figure out what was going on. And one of the crew members was, you know, the, the one of the suppliers of a lot of the partying. And one night they staged a bust and he got arrested. And I remember I was supposed to be in my trailer. They kind of said, oh, I didn't know what was going on. It was like a week, like it was a night shoot. And he's oh, just, just hang out in the trailer. To, well, we're not filming. Like, what's going on? Like, something's up, you know? And I peeked out a few times and I saw one of the crew guys getting taken away in hand, getting cuffed and arrested. And, and uh, it was pretty exciting. So when Comedy History 101 relaunched back in May, the first person I turned to to be a guest was my good friend Rob Cantrell, who was a finalist on season one of Last Comic Standing. And not only did Rom give an inside look of what it was like to be a house member along with comedians Ralphie May, Rich Voss, and Corey Kahaney, but we also shared tales of what it was like to be a stand-up comedian in the 2000s in San Francisco. It was literally a comedy competition but it was during the days of reality television where it was like Big Brother and like Survivor. When I first saw it in the trade papers after I auditioned for it, when I auditioned for it, I was on the very first season and they, it didn't even have a title. It was just like this reality show that was looking for stand-up comedians and I was in line just like everybody else. And I think there was some buzz in the industry like managers and stuff were talking about it because it was with 
NBC and it was going to be on primetime. And at the time, Jay Moore was like a big movie star. Well, not a big movie star, but, you know. Jerry is back in his Jerry post Jerry Maguire days. Yeah. Post Jerry, which, yeah, Jerry Maguire was like, you know, a top rated Hollywood film in history. So he definitely had the pull. And he was like a, you know, old road comic from Jersey from back in the day. So he has, he was a big fan of stand-up comedy. And the pitch came down. Him and Barry Katz put together Last Comic Standing, which was literally like a kumite fight uh, of comics being judged. And then they live in a house. Like, that was over the years, it kind of dropped away from it. But, yeah, I had to live in a house for, you know, we lived in a house with the 10 top contestants and each week they worked off a guest like Survivor down to the last four. Ralphie May was on my season. Uh, Rich Voss was on my season. Corey Kahaney, Dave Mordahl, and then Dat Fan, which became one of the biggest names in people hating comedy, was the winner that season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to back up a bit, did you just have to do the one audition and then you were in the house? So my next one is they said you can go. They were like, Rob, and that's when they started flying me down to L.A. So I, I, the first one you do for free. But then they were like, hey, Rob, we want to bring you to the next one, which is the semifinals. And so I was like, OK, let's see how this goes. And that was in L.A. at the Laugh Factory. And that was the first time I met Ralphie May. And I grew up a lot in the South. Like, a lot of my relatives were the size of Ralphie. Like, I didn't trip on Ralphie. Like, Ralphie and I clicked. Ralphie had been doing comedy like 10 years. And he was just, like, crushing. He was just this, you know, over-the-top personality. But I remember meeting him. But I, we did the Laugh Factory. Kevin Shea and me, we went down to L.A. They put me up. And then we went and did the Laugh Factory. And this, the judges, it was, uh, no, it was uh, Joe Rogan, Buddy Hackett, and Monique were the three judges. Oh, wow. I think Buddy Hackett's last TV appearance was on Last uh, Comic Standing. Yes. And I did that surfing joke, and it was at the Laugh Factory. And at the time, San Francisco comics were better than L.A. comics was the weird thing. Like, when I went down there. It, I, I think there's a reason for that. It's just, I I'll attest that San Francisco audiences are some of the worst. Yeah. <laughs> they'll they'll hiss at you and they'll they'll be just arms folded. And it's known that way for music as well. Like for bands. They'll just be arm folded, I could do better than you sort of attitude. And it, yeah, it's a little prudish. <laughs> but little it makes snobby. the comics good. It makes so you good. It yeah. makes you not be a hack. Yeah, was, exactly. Especially not- back then. But in San Francisco, if you kind of sounded like some weird road comic or something they heard before, it was like, next, whatever, dude. Yeah, there were two camps in San Francisco. Like, we didn't like the hacky comics that would destroy the rooms. Yeah. But we'd be like, ah. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. But for- it, made you, it made you a good comic, though. It made me a good comic because I, you know, I definitely, I would definitely probably lean into the hack style. You know, I'd kind of have a jock older brother. Like, I could definitely do kind of frat boy material but coming up in san francisco kind of in hanging out with you and arge and spiegelman and w kamal bell like i can't say how much i love those times when i look back on my life like being shaped in the beginning kind of like you could you could you can put the bar up a little bit you don't have to go all the way up but you you just had to be a, just a little bit more clever than your average bear Uh, on each joke. It was kind of the game back then.
Another good friend I got to interview was Michael Small, who was not only my editor when I worked for Wired, but also has the accolades of being a staff member on the legendary humor magazine, The Harvard Lampoon, whose alumni include such comedy illuminaries as Conan O'Brien, Greg Daniels, Jim Downey, Colin Jost, B.J. Novak, as well as pretty much every writer who's gone through SNL, The Simpsons, Letterman, Curb Your Enthusiasm, etc., etc. Part of the reason why I wanted to go to Harvard was because of the Harvard Lampoon. I really, really cared a lot about comedy and humor. And, and when I saw that this was a place that had a comedy humor magazine, it was very appealing to me, of course. That didn't necessarily mean I'd get into Harvard, <laughs> but it was something that made me more interested in that as compared to other schools. Because that, you know, I guess Yale has one, but as a member of the Lampoon, I am required to say that whatever Yale has is much worse. How did you become a staff member? Was it something like you had to show like writing samples, like you're a freshman at Harvard? How do you how do you join the you know prestigious Harvard Lampoon? There's something called the comp process, which I wanted to do and did first thing freshman year. And you had to turn in, I think, six or eight pieces, humor pieces. Um, there, You were only allowed into a certain part of the castle to submit your writing. And you would, your the writing that you submitted would get thrown down on a floor. And there was sort of like all, all the entries were on the floor. And then people would just random members would randomly go and pick them up and look at them and write comments on the back. And then you would get to go in each week and see the comments that were written. And in my case, they were absolutely scathing. Like what would be an example? Like, was there no kid gloves involved? I mean, you're an impressionable freshman at Harvard and there's these upperclassmen and I could just, I would just know like very vulnerable. Oh yeah. Or any kind of scathing criticism. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it would go from just, and I think people put their initials after their comments. You have to also remember that they were, that, that they were doing parodies of comments and a parody of a mean comment. Ah, so, or or it, so they say in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, in air quotes. So it, it would be super mean, but maybe it might have been a nice person who wrote that too. It's too bad because I just now remember that I have them somewhere and I could have actually dug out those comments, but it will be a very painful experience. But they, they would say things, well, someone would just write not funny, but... What does that um, parody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be just direct. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess occasionally you would get a positive comment, but it was really challenging for me because I just didn't have any experience with with this kind of feedback at high school. Every single thing I wrote, people treated as if it was solid gold. And that is not how my <laughs> entries got treated. <laughs> I will say that my sense of humor was really rough and I, 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 it was very hit or miss. Let's put it that way. Like some things I could do were funny and some things I could do really were stupid. And, and I didn't know the difference between funny and stupid. Maybe I still don't. <laughs> 
to wrap up Comedy History 101's The Best of 2023. My interview with Michael Small was actually a two-parter. After the Harvard Lampoon, Michael went on to be a celebrity reporter for People magazine. And to close this out, Michael shares a little tale of a very uncomfortable encounter with a former SNL cast member. Then I look across the room, there's Bill Murray. Because my friends had worked at Saturday Night Live, I had actually met him for two seconds before. So I go over and I mentioned before to you, Tom Gamble and Max Pross from The Lampoon. So I go up to Bill Murray and I say, hey, Bill, I'm a friend of Tom Gamble and Max Pross. Will you talk, give me a quote for People Magazine? So he pauses and he looks down on me for a minute. He goes, all right, you really know those clowns? And I say, yes. He goes, all right, since you know them, I'll talk to you. Ask me a question. So I ask him my question. How does this movie reflect women's role in society today? And he goes, stupid question. Next question. So then (laughs) I didn't have so much, but I thought I'll put a little (laughs) twist on it. So I go, how does this movie reflect the role of actors in society? Did I see what I did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little twist. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, stupid question. Next question. So then I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. I'm sorry I bothered you. I, 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 I. I didn't really have a good question. Is there anything else you can tell me about this movie? And he goes, just, I said, just say anything you want, any quote that I can take away for this movie. And he goes, ask me a question. And I said, no, I, I don't need to. It's fine. He goes, ask me a fucking question. Everybody was saying fucking to me that night. And I'm like, oh my God, no, no, no. So I was like, okay, okay, got it. Just, just pretend, sorry, I bothered you. I'll just, I'll just go over. And he grabs my arm and he won't let go. And he's like, ask me a fucking question. Meanwhile, he starts to yell so loud, the whole room goes silent. Dustin Hoffman, Halston, Andy Warhol, Cheryl Teagues, all these people are standing right there watching. There are more celebrities in that room than I ever saw at People magazine. And to top it off, basically, Robert Evans has to come take Bill's hand off my arm. And he is screaming as he leaves the room, you fucking idiot. You can't even think of a fucking question. And everybody is silent. Were you like 21 at the time or something? I was maybe 22 or 23. (laughs) You stupid idiot. Ask me a fucking question. You can't even. And then he says, I'm going to call Gamble and Pross and tell them how stupid you are. And and I told, called Tom and Tom and I talked about this recently. He said, I thought you were calling to tell me somebody died. And I said, Tom, I, I, I made a fool of myself with Bill Murray. I asked some stupid questions. And, and. Tom said that he talked to Bill Murray after that. I I think Bill called Tom and said how stupid I was. And, and you know, Tom's take on it is that Bill was just pulling my arm and that it was, it was an act. I feel like it was more than that, but I do, Tom really knows Bill and he says Bill's a really nice guy and that he was just uh, playing with me because I said, he said it, and and he said, Bill was just really mad because he thought I didn't really know Tom and Max, and he thought I was a faker, and that he was going to punish me for faking that I knew them. And that, my friends, wraps up the best of Comedy History 101 for 2023. And we will be back in 2024 with a lot of Comedy History 101, where we will school you continually in comedy. 
But before we sign off, a few quick plugs. On January 7th, 7 p.m. at the People's Improv Theater, I'll be presenting my show, AI vs. Human Roast Battle. Come out and see a human comedian take on a machine learning AI in a roast battle of tomorrow. January 12th, 7 p.m. at the Red Room, I'll be presenting my show, Tale. NYC's finest storytelling. No hokey gimmicks, no dumb themes, just the best in New York storytelling. And on January 18th, 7 p.m. at Young Ethel's in Park Slope, come out to That 80s Improv Challenge. Three teams compete in a three-round game show by creating scenes inspired by obscure videos from the 1980s. And to wrap up January... On January 28th, 5 p.m. at Young Ethel's, I'll be presenting my show, Jokey Okey, stand-up comedy karaoke in a three-round game show. And you can find out more about my show dates on my website, harmonleon.com, or on the social medias, at harmonleon. And of course, as always, take some time to like, subscribe, comment, or even suggest a show topic on Comedy History 101, wherever you get your fine podcasts, or on our website, ComedyHistory101.com, or on the social medias, at Comedy History 101. And, as I mentioned, we will read your comments via AI, such as this. A comment on the history of National Lampoon Lemmings from a Dash Fat Bastard. I don't think that's his real name. And Dash's comment will be read by AI Sarah Silverman. Dash writes, Hi, big fan of the poon and that era in comedy. Thank you for this and for what you have to say here. Thank you, Dash, fat bastard, for your comment. And until 2024, bye everyone. Comedy History 101.